millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello, you're very welcome to The Tonight Show. As the government prepares to face a no-confidence vote, the Taoiseach says voters don't want an election. There would be a real doubt over a budget at the end of September if there was to be a general election in the next number of weeks. The number of COVID patients in hospital passes 1,000 again as the EU recommends a second booster jab for all over 60s amid fears of a new virus wave. We're likely to get another sub-variant if we stay with Omicron um, as the dominant variant, probably into our autumn. So we're likely to see this cycle of every three or four months getting surges. And the Tories decide on a timetable for replacing Boris Johnson, who says he's not getting directly involved in the election race. I would wish, wouldn't want to damage anybody's chances by offering my support. Join our online conversation on Twitter with your comments and questions. It's hashtag TonightVMTV. We start tonight with the rising political temperature. The Taoiseach says a motion of no confidence in the government will be defeated because the country does not want a general election. Neil Martin was speaking ahead of a Sinn Féin motion in the Dáil tomorrow. We haven't done side deals, but we do uh, engage with, with independents in respective issues that they raise along with members of our own parliamentary party. I do believe uh, a majority of TDs believe in in getting things done, in constructively dealing with challenges and problems and primarily dealing with the cost of living and ensuring that we have a budget at the end of September. Uh, there would be a real doubt over a budget at the end of September if there was to be a general election in the next number of weeks. Well, I'm joined by Minister of State for Special Education, Josepha Madigan, Sinn Féin TD, Louise O'Reilly, Irish Examiner Political Editor, Daniel O'Connell, and Wayne Stanley from Simon Communities of Ireland. You're all very welcome to the programme. Louise, uh, last week Sinn Féin calling once again for an emergency budget to tackle the cost of living. This week you want the government to collapse in a general election. Is that what people want? Um, well, I was out canvassing this evening in Balrodri and uh, definitely people want to change a government. Absolutely, they want to see this uh, this government gone. Um, and certainly that's the, the feedback that we have been getting. But the simple fact is this is a minority government now. They have lost uh, their, their dull majority um, and they might have what they call a, a worker majority or deals with independence. Who knows? But really, um, you know, the, this is a minority government. And I think... The time has come for them to go. We have been calling for cost of living measures. We have been calling for an emergency budget. They're not listening. They're not listening to what people are saying and they are tone deaf to the struggles that people are facing at the, the moment. says, look, they're all about constructive 
policies and they work with independents who want to help them with those policies, but that Sinn Féin is always destructive. And that's what you're being with this motion. Absolutely not. Um, and I think our record will show that uh, as a, an opposition party, we have been incredibly constructive. We worked well uh, cross-party during COVID and we will continue uh, to do that where there is scope to work cross-party. Cross we always do, but we cannot stand by when our constituency offices are being uh, called on, on a daily basis. And when I do my clinics every right. single week in Balbriggan, in Swords, in Rush, in Lusk, in Scaries, in the area that I represent, people are telling us they cannot take any more. Josefa, you've basically left Sinn Féin with no option. People can't take any more and it is time for a general election, time for you to go. That's why this motion has been called. Uh, on the contrary, I mean, I think this is a really contemptuous um, manoeuvre uh, by Sinn Féin. I think it's misanthropic. I think it's a really futile exercise, actually. Uh, they already know what the result is. Uh, they knew that before. They put down the motion. In fact, they had a, a, a motion on housing down uh, and changed it then uh, to this motion uh, of no confidence. And, you know, we have... Uh, enough TDs. Uh, we will have enough TDs into the future. And this is, you know, Sinn Féin prides itself on being a nationalist party, but in fact, it's importing a, a UK type of political um, type of culture and trying to create this instability and chaos. Um, and and they say they're the opposition and their job is to hold you to account yeah, when Gail is in but, government but, for 11 years. The, the, there is huge problems. These, these motions are meaningless and it's just, you know, they're, they're, it's just political opportunism, uh, 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 you know, at worst. Uh, and at best, as I said, it's sort of, uh, you know, uh, misanthropic really and contemptuous in Louise. my view. Well, of course, the junior minister is afraid of a general election. She doesn't want to have to Nobody's go to Nobody's afraid of a general election. Sticking not me, I brought in two seats and uh, was, last, uh, last, the last occasion. Obvious, uh, if you just let me finish Deputy. and don't interrupt, that'd be nice. Well, yeah. um, so uh, clearly, and you can hear it, um, the head of government spent the weekend on the phone trying to shore up support among his backbenchers. So there is not, uh, I don't think, any unanimity, by the way, on the government benches. And the, the backbenchers will have an opportunity now tomorrow night uh, to put their money where their mouth is. And it does, just if it does highlight that this government has lost its majority. I mean, you have lost a lot of uh, Fianna Fáil, I mean, Fianna Gael and two Green Party members yeah, because you know, of decisions it, it, It's all down to votes at the end of the day. Minority government or not. The last government in which I was in Cabinet, we were a minority government uh, with the Independent Alliance. We can absolutely get through any any budget. I mean, like they're proposing an emergency budget and then suddenly they, they want to have an election. I mean, do you, you know the election would probably cost about 20 million to the state as well, apart from anything else. I mean, really, it's not the right time when you're dealing with Brexit, we're dealing still with the pandemic, we're dealing with the war in Ukraine and now Sinn Féin want to call a general election. I mean, it's ridiculous. Uh, Daniel, and they know the outcome of this already. We yeah, don't we know, do the know I think we do know we the outcome. We do know the outcome. Yeah. Uh, Daniel, you have the outcome, I'd Yeah, so, so we were tracking... The, uh, the the various independents that may or may not support the government. So our, as we have it as of now, it's 83 votes will go with the government tomorrow. And there are 69 who are confirmed in opposition. There are six unknowns and that's 158 who are there to uh, vote. The Karen Corley obviously won't vote and Dennis Nocton is believed to be away. So out of the 160, 158 right. will be eligible to vote. And those six unknowns... They're not relying yeah, so on them So they are the two Greens, Nessa Harrigan, or former Greens, Nessa Harrigan and Patrick Costello, who are believed to either go, either abstain or will vote with the government because obviously Nessa Harrigan has a committee ship that she would probably like, a chairmanship she'd probably like to keep. You have the likes of... And she has been abstaining recently, hasn't Cahill she? Berry, Cahill Berry, uh, Peter Fitzpatrick um, and a couple of others, Matt Shanahan, have all said they will not declare their hand until 
close to the vote tomorrow. But again, they're either likely to abstain. They may, some, Matt Shannon, who's been very vocal in criticising the government, may, may vote against. But again, the margin is still broad enough for the government to survive this. I think there is a legitimate criticism of the government is that, you know, fundamentally, it has been seen to fail in the two key areas of health and housing. And by any metric, it has failed on those two key metrics of health and housing. Everything else is kind of, I won't say less significant, but certainly not as important. You talk to younger colleagues of mine who, you know, are, are in good pay, you know, well-paid jobs who cannot get a sniff of getting a house in the Dublin area. And that's wrong. That's just blatantly wrong. And Fine Gael can't escape from the fact that it's been in government yeah. since 2011. And ultimately, and also what they've done is they've doubled the national debt on their watch. And you're kind of wondering, well, where has all this money uh, gone to? Um, well, first of all, we balance the books. Uh, you know, when Fine Gael got into power, as you know, in 2011, we managed to restore the public finances, Daniel. Um, like, I think you've balanced you know, the books we, once in 11 years. It, 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 it took a long time to deal with that. We dealt through Brexit, the pandemic, and now we have a war in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, the, the housing for all policy, you know, is, is the most ambitious uh, plan that we've ever had All right, and we're going to get into policy yeah. in a minute. Just, Daniel, to go back to you, uh, the Taoiseach has denied that there's any, you know, side deals happening at the mm. moment, but they do have supports from the independents. And how do you shore up that support from those independents when you need them if you don't do those deals, well, Daniel? Since Ireland has gone into this paradigm of coalition government and, and governments relying on the, you know, the support of independents, you've always seen these sort of side deals. Going back to Jackie Healy Ray famously with Bertie Hearn, etc. At that, you have a certain cohort of, of independent TDs like Michael Larry who have remained steadfast in their support of government. Himself and No Grealish are likely to vote with the government tomorrow. We're counting them among those 83. There are others who I would suspect are trying to eke out a little bit of extra movement on, on you know, issues of concern to them and that's why they'll probably declare their hands tomorrow. And if they're happy with whatever they can eke out of government, then they'll, they'll stay on board. If they don't, they'll vote with the opposition knowing that the government will, will, will not collapse. All right. Well, uh, one of those people who is going to uh, vote uh, against the government tomorrow is independent Wexford TD uh, Verona Murphy. First of all, Verona, was anybody from government in touch with you over the weekend or last week trying to shore up your support? Good evening, Kira. Yeah, I did have a call. Uh, I had met with my team at the time and I had made my decision. We as a team collectively made a decision to vote no confidence and I didn't take the call. Uh, so you couldn't be bought is what you're saying, is that it? No, that's not how I do politics. Um, you know, I'm probably one of the few TDs has very much a 50-50 record with government. Uh, the policies I support are, are supported on the basis of the people of Wexford and those that I vote against are on the basis of how they affect the people of Wexford. Uh, so on this, on this occasion, it. I suppose, Verona, why are you uh, voting against? Well, you heard Daniel say, you know, there's not a sniff of getting a house in Dublin. That, in fact, is the same in Wexford. There is no affordable housing. We've just passed a county development plan at local government level that will actually see serviced lands dezoned, driving up the price of the land that will be left at a time when we have no affordable housing. Just makes no sense. We're in the same <coughs> position with health. We have the fourth largest budget in the world per capita and yet we have the delivery of a third world health service. All right, I think we've just uh, lost Verona there, but I want to put those points uh, and points I think that Daniel has made to you, Josefa, which is that on the two big issues, housing and health, Health, we have the longest waiting lists uh, that we've ever had in this country. And housing, there's a huge supply issue, there's a huge affordability issue, and renters are paying way over the odds uh, in this country. And the government should be held to account on those two big issues. Well, well first of all, 
if I if I start your question backwards, um, just in terms of rent, um, you know, we, we capped rent increases at two percent and um, higher rents. We, though, we, we, you know what I mean. Well, if you're paying we, higher rents, we, having them capped two percent is no use uh, to you. There, there's the for, new uh, the new just so you uh, accept that. There, there's the new uh, rental scheme uh, as well today. Um, with, you know, for short-term rents, which means that you know somebody can't advertise unless they have the proper planning permission from the first of September, um, okay. and uh, otherwise that'll be a difficulty. We'll be building three hundred thousand homes by twenty thirty, thirty three thousand a year for by twenty twenty four. Last year we built, uh, or this year we we're, we're going to build ten and a half thousand social houses. Last year we built nine thousand social houses. We are making incremental. It is it is a difficult area and it's a challenging area. And I, don't, I think everybody would accept that, um, but I do think that this plan, once and for all, is going to tackle this issue. All right, Wayne, look, you see politicians here arguing they're not doing enough, we are doing enough. You're dealing uh, with the reality on the ground. What is that reality like for people? Um, what we're seeing, so we do a quarterly report, Locked Out of the Market, where we looked at the um, availability in the private rental market for people who are on a housing assistance payment. And that's a payment available through your local authority to help people on low incomes meet the cost of their rent. Um, within that, local authorities have a, a level of discretion where they can go above the basic rates. Outside of Dublin, at the time of the report, it was 20%, and in Dublin, it's 50%, so it's quite significant. Um, but even in that context, there was only, across the 16 areas we looked at, there was only 37 properties within a half rate, and that's if the local authorities used up to the maximum of their discretion. Sorry, the, just to be clear, 37 properties, where were they? They were, uh, 27 of them were in Dublin, and then there was 10 uh, scattered around outside of Dublin, in a couple in Dundalk, um, Okay, so 37 within the half rate, but as you say, there is discretion there to go above that? No, that's using the discretion. Using the discretion. There was only two okay, properties sorry, within the basic here. rate mm -hmm. and uh, 35 additional ones if the discretion was used by the local authorities. What that means is there was only 657 properties in total. That's if you had, you know, if you had no cap at all, no HAP, just uh, available to anybody at any price. That number a year ago was 2,000 and a few years before that was 8,000. So it's a crisis of unprecedented levels in the private rental market and people are really feeling it. And the reason why the Simon Community monitors this is the HAP payment is the, is the payment that will prevent people coming into homelessness and will support people out of homelessness and it isn't functioning in the system because the housing system, the rental system, isn't working. The rental system isn't I, working. I know the housing, I, I know the housing commission the is, there, is... They're on the ground, they're yeah. saying a crisis of un unprecedented proportions in this country 11 years in. Yeah, well, first to mention around, around to the HAP, I know, I know that Minister for Housing and Deeper uh, are looking at uh, the, the discretion rate to try and increase that to 35%. Um, and they're also, they're also trying to expand... And when do you expect that to be brought in? Uh, I, 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 I assume soon. I know that they're working on it at the moment. Uh, he'll obviously have to get the sanction from Deeper to do that. Um, but obviously then as well, what they're trying to do is expand... Um, the rate, so you know, it, it for couples to singles, so that that would okay. effectively um, secure. So they're, they're working on the secure their, their tenancies okay. and prevent those entering homelessness as well. So eleven years in, Kira, the message from the government is we're working on it. Rents in my constituency went up fifteen percent in the last year. 
15%. They started off unaffordable. They are now way beyond unaffordable. Okay. Well, I think, you need to look, I think you need to look at the Housing Minister in Northern Ireland when you see the fact that you actually increased rents by 2.7% in, in the North and you actually wanted us to freeze rents here, which they did what they did in Berlin. Okay, so we're in a and, crisis and that here in this statement. was legally for which challenged. You should take some responsibility. Yeah, but you know. And you don't. Yeah, like, and what I, you I, say I, is I, just the, live the horse, get grass, there's no, we there's might no do something later. Taking, well, nothing is happening no problem, now. No, but there's no problem taking legitimate criticism. But not when you're when you already, when your party is already in government and it actually effectively hasn't changed anything. You have 45,000 okay, on the social housing okay. list in Northern but Ireland. In power, you haven't exactly been effective either in dealing with the okay, housing so, costs. So that's, there, there's, there's a world of difference between how the lists are calculated here and in the North and uh, the there junior isn't. minister knows that. You have 16,000 homeless okay, in Northern Ireland. So what we have after 11 years of Fine Gael right, so government. Not look at, okay, we've made that we point. Have you're people, not going to deal with the no, situation no, I, in Ireland. I want to go back to... I want to go back. I, want to, I, I do um, want to address that because what I want to say is very, very simple. Okay? 11 years, Fine Gael in government and they have failed. Okay, they won't yeah, do and you failed that. in the north, you please. Back in ownership yeah, of that. Just to say that that increase uh, to 35% outside of the Dublin region, my understanding is that that should come in, uh, should have come in today and the statutory instrument has been signed. We actually tracked that in this report because we had anticipated the Minister actually announced it at a, at a Fianza conference uh, a couple of weeks earlier. And that would brought an additional five properties. Um, an additional five, five properties, properties outside of the Dublin region. Now, that is, you know, that isn't going to deal with the homelessness crisis. It is important to say that that additionality will help keep some people in their homes because what we're seeing is uh, 37 properties available doesn't mean that that's all people are going after. So what they're doing is they're taking money out of the all social right. welfare payment to top I'm up just 500, conscious 500, that, Verona, you got cut off there. I know you want to come back in. Yeah. Thanks, Kira. I mean, look, at whilst immediately we have to deal with the HAP issue, the answer here is to deliver housing. And the minister, you can defend it whatever way you like. That. This government has not delivered housing. It may have delivered more units on paper, but there are units that people don't want. There are units that are delivered and bought and purchased by Cuckoo Funds, which does nothing for the homeless. We have the same situation in Wexford. We now have a planning policy that may see apartments built, apartments that people do not want to live in. And I think it's the planning policy that the minister is refusing to tackle that is holding up the actual building of houses all over the country. And until such time as he tackles the basis and fundamental issues, we're not going to see housing increased. And that is one of the main reasons I will be voting against government when the, in the no confidence okay. motion. But you know, um, Louise, uh, thank you, Verona. I know, you know, Louise, you're not going to win this motion tomorrow. I think it's quite clear there from the, um, uh, the numbers that Daniel just outlined. So, you know, I, what are you actually really trying to achieve by this? I mean, you were meant to be debating a housing motion tomorrow. Is that not what the opposition should be doing rather than, you know, coming up with these motions that they know are going to fail and um, that is perhaps a waste of time? It's not a waste of time. Democratic accountability is never a waste of time and the minister and her colleagues really might be allergic to accountability, but Sinn Féin is not. Uh, it is our job as a lead party of opposition to hold the government to account and we will do but, that. And but we are you not going to delay, you know, delay possible interventions back this government, if you did succeed, on top of the government, brought them down, had a general election. I'm sorry, Kira, delay what intervention? Uh, sorry, aside from 11, the fact that there's a lot of legislation in the door this week. Of, right. this, of, okay, of this party in point. government. You're taking so valuable Daniel, 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 Daniel back It's in our here. private member's time, Minister, as yeah, you know. It's so still valuable. It's our private time. member's time. Sorry, ladies. Uh, Daniel, has this exposed fault lines? 
within the coalition? Well, I, I think what's happened here is you, you've almost had a conflation of the no-confidence motion and that backbench meeting of Fianna Fáil TDs which, and senators, which did kind of articulate an unhappiness about their identity, about their position in government and their relationship with their colleagues. Because I mean, one of the key criticisms that I heard of was a lot of the senators were annoyed that the Fianna Gael senators were chipping away at Fianna Fáil ministers constantly, <clears throat> like Dara O'Brien and Stephen Donnelly in particular, saying that they're constantly undermining them and having a go at them on the record of the floor of the Shannon, whether or not they should re respond in kind. I think what we've seen so far is, is a government has been relatively stable, but I think the, the, sooner, the closer we get to kind of the next election cycle, that, Morale that, is that, wavering, is it? I, I just I get that sense that you know they're they're figuring out we might be okay in government, but how do we then go back to the electorate and be rivals again? And that issue I think is is sitting uncomfortably. We've also had I suppose the the clearing up of the Leo Varadkar issue, and I think the reality is beginning to hone in that the, the closer we get to December, he gets stronger, and Fianna Fáil, notwithstanding being in government in the Taoiseach's office for the last two and a half years, have very little to show for it. All right, um, moving on, we want to look at what's happening in the UK. The new leader of Britain's Conservative Party will be announced on September 5th. Under rules agreed tonight, nominations will open and close tomorrow. Eleven candidates have already declared. Outgoing Tory leader Boris Johnson refused to be drawn on the state of the race today. I, I don't want to say any more about it or that there's a... There's a contest underway and that must happen and, you know, I would wish, wouldn't want to damage anybody's chances by offering my support. I just have to, Not to a get scintilla on. of I, anger. I have to get on and in the last few days and weeks, the, the job of, the constitutional function of the Prime Minister in this, in this situation is to, is to discharge uh, the mandate, to continue to discharge the mandate uh, and, and that's what I'm doing. Well, tonight, Tory party elders have decided that timetable for the race in the party to replace the leader, Boris Johnson. I'm joined by GB News political editor Darren McCaffrey uh, with more on this. Uh, so this has just been decided in the last couple of hours, Darren. By Thursday, just in 48 hours, that 11 will be whittled down to two. Uh, probably not as early as this Thursday. It's probably going to be the Thursday after. So as you're right in pointing out, nominations open and close tomorrow. We've already got 11 candidates. We may get one more. The Home Secretary, Priti Patel, has apparently been trying to weigh up all day whether she'll enter the race. Uh, then on Wednesday, we'll get the first round of uh, voting. You have to get at least 20 MPs to back you to get into that first round, and many of them are well short at the moment. Only half the party has declared who they'll back. Then there'll be a second round on Thursday, and it will carry on probably into next week until, as you say, they get down to the final two. And then when the final two have been decided by MPs, that's when it stops in Parliament because it goes for its summer holidays. And it's then up to the Conservative Party membership, about 100-odd thousand people who will get to decide in the month of August, after lots of hustings and TV debates, who they want to be to be Conservative leader, but in the end, also the Prime Minister of the UK. And as you say, that announcement is going to be made on the 5th of September, uh, which will be Boris Johnson's last day in office. And Boris saying there in that clip that he won't publicly you know, support anyone, that if he did, it might damage their chances. He's not going to get involved. But is that what is happening behind the scenes? Well, of course, Boris Johnson has been blamed for bringing down three Prime Ministers, hasn't he? Uh, David Cameron, Theresa May, 
and himself. Uh, so maybe whoever is going forward for the Conservative leadership may not want uh, the backing of the Prime Minister at the moment, given how non, who unpopular it is. But you're right. Is there skullduggery happening behind the scenes? Is there lots of briefings against some of the candidates? There definitely seems to be an operation in Number 10 to stop Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, who's been branded a treacherous snake by some in Number 10 from or the former Chancellor from getting uh, the leadership. He, though, remains the favourite, it must be said, uh, certainly amongst MPs. Uh, in the end, I reckon he'll probably make the final two, though the system is so unpredictable. Uh, who will be up against? Maybe Liz Truss, the Foreign Secretary. Uh, maybe Penny Morden, the International Trade Minister, who's doing quite well in terms of support for MPs. But as I say, it, it's so unpredictable. No one thought Margaret Thatcher was going to win in 1975. No one thought David Cameron was going to win in 2005. If everyone was going to put a bet on it, you know, you're taking a bit of a risk to be frank. Uh, and I think the Conservatives maybe would have thought that they might have enjoyed some little bounce uh, in the polls, given the fact that Johnson is on his way out. But really, it is the Labour Party, uh, isn't it, Darren, who are enjoying some bounce off the back of this debacle? Yeah, the latest poll out today, one that's been carried out since Boris Johnson's resignation, puts Labour 15 points ahead, which would give them an absolute majority in Parliament if that was translated into the election. I think it's a reminder that at the end of the day, you know, it's true across the world, whether it's in Ireland, the UK or anywhere else. Voters don't like divided parties. And my word, the Conservative Party is absolutely riven with division at the moment. They're really divided on this big issue, not just of who's going to be leader, but on taxation and tax cuts. A big chunk of the party wants to see really substantial tax cuts to try and give people a bit of extra money in this cost of living crisis. Others think it's massively fiscally irresponsible. And as you say, Labour, all Keir Starmer is doing right now is essentially sitting back and watching the Conservative Party really grapple with all of this through the division. The big thing is, though, we're probably now only about 18, 20 months out from a general election. Can any new leader, whoever it is, genuinely, realistically trying to unite this party? Can they win the next election after 13, 14 years in power? That's going to be a really, really big ask. All right, uh, Darren McCaffrey, thank you uh, for that update. I imagine Keir Starmer sitting somewhere with a big smile on his face uh, at the moment. Now, my thanks to Darren, uh, Verona, Murphy and Wayne Stanley. The rest of my panel is staying with me. Next, a summer COVID crisis. How are workers and companies coping? Do you stay with us? 
Welcome back. My panel is still with me. Minister of State Josefa Madigan, Sinn Féin TD Louise O'Reilly, Irish Examiner Political Editor Daniel McConnell, and I'm also joined now by Anthony Staines, Professor of Health Systems at DCU. First to the founder of HR Buddy, Damien McCarthy, to discuss the workplace implications of the current COVID summer wave. Today, virus cases in hospital again exceeded 1,000. So how is this current wave, this current surge uh, affecting businesses and workplaces, Damien? Well, it's very uh, challenging indeed, uh, Kira, and uh, for uh, very many workplaces, it means, of course, very high absenteeism levels. And I suppose an awful lot of businesses are almost being doubly impacted or, you know, they're getting even a triple whammy in some circumstances. And if you look at some sectors like hospitality, uh, retail and construction and so on, your traditional uh, workplaces, they're suffering with labour shortages. They're obviously uh, suffering as part of the inflation crisis. And they're also more impacted in a time like this where we see um, a rise in COVID cases um, because they can't switch back to things like remote working and hybrid working, which other maybe office location workplaces are able to do to try and prevent the spread inside in the workplaces. So in particular, there are some industries in very big trouble and it's obviously happening at peak season for them. July is a very important month in particular for uh, hospitality and in tourism. So uh, we really need to look, I think, at a government level uh, at a long-term strategy of providing financial supports in crises such as uh, COVID waves like this. Um, you mentioned there that some businesses perhaps are able to reintroduce some of the measures that they had you know, back when we were dealing with COVID in 2020 and 2021. Is there evidence of that, you know, more working from home, more working pods, etc.? Yeah, I think uh, very much so. It, uh, these decisions are now being taken from the point of view of uh, the health and safety, um, I suppose, needs within the workplace and also to try and prevent uh, more and more absenteeism in the workplace. So we're seeing things like, um, again, the switch back to hybrid and remote working. Uh, we're seeing working pods being reintroduced and social distancing inside in workspaces um, being looked at again. Do you see businesses with contingency plans or have they been kind of caught in the hop this time around? Um, I don't think so. I think um, an awful lot of businesses um, have been listening to the expert views in this. Um, we know that we can expect COVID waves. I think the World Health Organization, as far back as two or maybe even three months ago, um, were predicting that we would have a peak season uh, July uh, you know, peak COVID wave. So I think an awful lot of businesses were, uh, to a certain extent, prepared for this. But I would worry that from a financial point of view, they're being impacted. There's really nothing they can do about it. Their bottom line is impacted continuously uh, by COVID waves. And there needs to be a strategy put in place to help these businesses or they won't survive. Yeah, because I'm just so conscious so many of those businesses have had a really difficult uh, couple of years. A lot of employees feeling burnt out and being put under extra pressure to probably fill the voids left by staff who are absent because of COVID? Yes, um, and like if you look at some of the contingency plans, if you were to look at things, in, uh, let's say in the hospitality sector, uh, some premises are now closing on their two quietest trading days because they can't cover over the seven-day work roster. Now, that's very unfortunate. Um, they had to make that decision um, also from the point of view, as you mentioned, Kira, uh, with regards to uh, burnout of their employees and adhering to the Working Time Act and so on. But it leaves people challenges whereby you're asking your employees to continue 
continuously work weekends. And um, an awful lot of good employers are rewarded in times of crisis by their good employees. And I suppose the employers that have got it right over the past two years in the crisis, such as COVID, are being rewarded by good uh, employees at the moment. But it is very much desperate times. Uh, Anthony, were you prepared? Were you expecting this current wave, you know, that we are in, what, the middle of July and we have uh, case numbers in hospital over 1,000? Yeah, pretty much, unfortunately. I was hoping it wouldn't happen, but it did. Uh, the other sector that's being hammered is the health sector. Staffing levels in the health sector are down. Agency staff are unobtainable for love, money or anything else. Costs are going up. The ability to provide care is going down. Finley Hay called today from the INMO for the government to really take some quite serious action protecting staff in healthcare, which is the health and safety issue the previous speaker was referring to. And that this all has to be done. We, we know what to do with this. We know this is an airborne virus. So we know it's about vaccination, boosters, ventilation, air filtration and masks. That's what we can do. Are we just will reduce risks. in a cycle of surges now, Anthony? Probably. That, that's, that's the view of a lot of the virologists uh, who, you know, they would know much more about this than I would. But their take on the biology of this is that we are likely to see repeated surges. Well, I hope, I really hope they're wrong, but that, that's what the biology is, is saying. So in this current surge, you know, where are we kind of at on the trajectory? Would you expect that it's peaked or that it'll get worse? Or can you tell at this you point tell. this virus? We've got data which says what the infections were about a week, 10 days ago, in terms of hospital admissions, which only gives us a very narrow view of what's actually going on. So we're flying blind. We, we, don't, we don't know and we won't know. Please God, it will start coming down. But what really frightens people in my business is the possibility of a bad flu season and COVID. Because we're having a bad flu season in Australia right now. And typically, but not, not always, but typically, if they have bad flu in Australia, we have bad flu in the autumn. So, you know, get your flu vaccinations as soon as HSE make them available, probably September, early October. Um, Josefa, are we, as Anthony says, flying blind at this point when it comes to COVID? Um, my understanding is that is that that we will that this wasn't unexpected. The fact that we would have over a thousand uh, in hospitals, and you know we had the advisory group, uh, which is chaired by by the CMO or the acting CMO, um, you know, and the the, the national virus uh, reference laboratory group is on that as well, and the health protection surveillance centre uh, and others who, who give advices to the government and to the minister for health uh, in terms of dealing with the pandemic. Um, but, you know, th there's no doubt about it that the, the new sub-lineage, I think the, the BA4s and BA5, mm. I think have contributed to this wave. Um, but, you know, at the moment, there's no advice to change public health measures. Um, I mean, I was and interested... the go government in doesn't feel concerned at all by the current but numbers, the, the, by the, the numbers either going into hospital or, as we were talking earlier, you know, the impact that it's having on, on the workforce. On, of, of course the government is concerned, um, you know, and, and I, I know that Minister Donnelly brought a memo uh, to Cabinet in terms of, you know, mask wearing, uh, you know, as a prudent exercise. It's not so much relevant to now, uh, but it may, may have to happen in the future. And I was really struck by what Damien said in terms of businesses, you know, and I think employers in the main are being quite flexible, you know, with their employees in terms of hybrid or remote working or working in pods um, to try and, you know, mitigate against infection. But, but in general terms, you know, the, the public health measures 
or the public health advice needs to be taken into account. And you know, we, like, and you're not you look, getting any advice it, at the it, moment it, to change the, anything. The, well, there are, there are three quarters uh, of the people in, in hospital, the thousand, are over the age of 65, and over half of them haven't had the second booster. So you know, that's really important that people get the vaccination, the primary yeah, vaccination, so, as a, well as as well as the booster. A sort of a failing of, of government or the messaging around this that so many are in hospital at the moment. I don't over think 65, so because and they we, don't have that second booster, which is there and is available. Well, from from now. Efforts, you know, last meeting, we went from sort of an emergency phase when you were talking about restrictions um, and you're talking about regulation. And we've now moved to, you know, we transitioned, I suppose, if you like, into a more personal uh, responsibility uh, around COVID. So it's but that's up not to those to, over but that, 65. But that's not to they've say. Been told, get your booster. Th- but that's what they, they should get their booster. Um, and, you know, we've always said that and, and maintained that. I think there a degree of complacency can happen, you know, uh, when something has been around for a long period of time and people are tired and, and they're weary and that's completely understandable. Um, and it's difficult for all of us, but we do need to maintain that uh, if we're trying to keep not just ourselves safe, but everyone else around us. Uh, Louise, what would Sinn Féin do differently at this point? Well, I think what we need is, and there's something that was very worrying actually when, uh, when when Anthony said we're flying blind. So I think we, we might need a little bit more information and, you know, that comes from surveillance. I think that might be, now might be a good time to step that up. Um, I think we do need to refresh, uh, the government does need to refresh the me- the, uh, the messaging in relation to uh, the boosters. But and I do think... When you say surveillance, what are you talking about there? I'm talking about testing in the community just to assess the levels that we're at because, I mean, when Anthony says we're flying blind, that says to me we need more information and more information helps to, to not be flying blind. It's very worrying that the government will be flying blind on this. We're, we're, but I think, yeah, um, you know, it's important that that surveillance would happen so that the more information that the government have, the, the, the better able that they might be to uh, to address the, the issues. But I think maybe a refresh on the messaging with regard to the booster as well would be, would be useful. But there is a really serious concern um, in terms of workers who are contracting COVID at work. Um, I did have a piece of legislation at the start of the pandemic which would have made it a notifiable disease which actually would have included the surveillance uh, element to it but that wasn't supported. So I think the the important thing now is to refresh the messaging but also to look at our health service and our sectors where there are issues. We also have sorry if I could just finish sorry, this point, yeah. the work from home um, legislation which um, you know, like two, two and a bit years into this government still haven't done the, the work from home legislation right. required substantial yeah, amendments but, but we're hopeful that it will uh, that our amendments will strengthen it actually make it fit okay. for I, I, I just briefly just wanted to mention the advisory group does monitor the epidemiological situation um, it does look at horizon scanning um, it does monitor uh, data um, and you know uh, all of the time so uh, it's, it's wrong to say that, that the government isn't aware of it and looking at it. Um, at what point, Daniel, does sort of the numbers in hospital start to have a real impact in terms of, you know, outpatient appointments being cancelled, elective surgeries being cancelled? Wasn't that just over the thousand? Yeah, like we're, we're kind of pretty near that sort of threshold. And again, we're, we're dealing with a hospital system that has been so traumatised over the last two, two and a half years anyway. And there were people working within it who were absolutely exhausted. Yeah, and, and you're and dealing with people and, 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 you know, all of these promises that have been made. But I, I, my, my big fear is that we head into the autumn and we get ourselves back in the space of almost rushing ourselves into the talk of restrictions. I would love to see a more finessed, more grown-up response to this because I think what we saw last year was a very 
sledgehammer type approach when things kind of got bad. I think there are other ways of looking at it. And of course, we'd be guided by experts like Anthony and others who, who are clearly far more proficient in this. But I, I found it deeply frustrating. I, I thought many of my readers and many people who you talk to all the time found it very disappointing that when things spiked a bit, you know, it was a lockdown again or was it another lockdown? I think if What's we are... What's a better response then? I don't do know. you mean that sort of mature response? What does well, that I would like? just think something like, literally, we, we fell into this pattern of saying it was, you know, lockdown, which was only ever supposed to be a kind of a, either a circuit break or something to kind of be a temporary emergency measure, became the default. What you'd like to see is better testing and tracing. You'd like to see a better sort of ability of the system to cope with, with all of these things. But I suppose what, what COVID did was expose the very real frailties in our health system, in our education system, and elsewhere where ventilation just simply didn't exist. I would love to see a more, as I say, a more sophisticated response if we're heading into what looks likely a difficult enough winter. Yeah, because we should be concerned, yeah. shouldn't we? Because it is July, you know, and yeah, the ventilation at any time of year probably isn't great. But yeah. July, you would think at the moment that would be quite positive. But That's uh, not going to be there in the winter months. But I'd it? agree with every word you just said. I mean, lockdowns are not an intelligent continuing response. They're not a bad emergency response to a new virus that you don't really understand, which is the situation when this all started. All right. But as an ongoing response, they don't work. OK. Just, so, I, just want to, sorry, I just want to go on to something uh, yeah. completely yeah. Uh, different um, because we are going to be talking uh, about a story in the Irish Times today uh, in terms of Uber, um, the uh, taxi uh, app, uh, and their lobbying in Ireland. Uh, Josefa, are you uncomfortable at all that uh, lobbying uh, from Uber made its way into the Fine Gael, uh, Manifesto? And we will be talking about this in more detail in, in the next part. Well, I only read about that briefly myself today, I think, uh, in one of the papers. Um, I mean, in terms of lobbying in general, as long as they have registered with the lobbying uh, register, I think, you know, I don't think there's it, there's nothing against lobbying as long as they have declared that they have lobbied. And uh, that's my understanding in relation to it. So you have no difficulty with a big business like uh, Uber, you know, getting in touch with somebody who's formerly been working as a civil servant and having sort of direct access and ending up uh, in the Fine Gael Manifesto. Now, there's not well, a I mean, legal, I, I, absolutely I mean, I don't legal. Know, I'm just wondering, I don't know enough. I, I, only, I, I only just read that briefly today. I mean, you know, as I said, I think people are entitled to lobby. Uh, organisations do all the time uh, and there's a lobbying register where they declare the fact that they've lobbied a particular person. I would always like to see things done in, in a formal way, of course, um, you know, but I, I, I'm not aware of the, the intricacies of that particular story to be able to comment on it. Right. The, the information they tried to keep out of the lobbying register so that the former civil servant offered to drop a note personally to the minister's home. That's a very, very deep yeah. and Well, I mean, concern. I think that's a, that's a matter very, to, to very be looked at, obviously. Yeah. You would agree that should be looked at? Just or like yeah, well, I, I, think, I, I think, you know, I mean, the, the difficulty is, I suppose, you, it's very difficult to stop people dropping things, in, you know, into people's houses. I mean, you, you would have to look at how you mitigate against that. I think that's obviously clearly All going right. to be an issue. All yeah. right, look, at, uh, unfortunately, we have to uh, go. My thanks to Damien, Josefa, Louise, Daniel and Anthony. Uh, next, more on that Uber lobbying controversy. Do you stay with us? Welcome back. It's been revealed today how the US-based taxi hailing company Uber lobbied the Irish government to try and change rules that blocked its business model in Ireland. I'm joined by Simon Carswell, Public Affairs Editor with the Irish Times. You're very welcome to the programme. These are called the uh, Uber files. And I think what's been really the most interesting thing is not that lobbying 
takes place because everybody knows, you know, politicians are lobbied all the time. It's sort of the conversations that happen in parallel to sort of the official lobbying. That's what's been interesting here, hasn't it? Yeah, that's it. We don't really ever see what happens on the other side of the equation. If you think of lobbying as a transaction, there's two parties to that transaction. We know of the kind of high level detail of the contacts because the lobbying register compels people to, the, the lobbyists to compel uh, to, to, to submit returns to show who they are contacting within government, be it government ministers, be it senior civil servants, be it county council officials. But what these Uber files reveal, it kind of pulls the curtain on the motives and also the thinking in a major multinational like Uber and its thinking as to what it was actually trying to do by lobbying the Irish government, by trying to change very strict taxi regulations in order to allow this business model where everyone could basically be a, a, a taxi or a cab um, using this app and using this technology. But Uber met significant resistance from the regulator here and ultimately didn't get in, didn't get their business model approved here. So what form did that lobbying take and who did that lobbying? Well, the lobbying was very intensive and the period that this covers is 2014 to 2017, but it's even more specific in, in the Irish case. Um, it's to do with late 20, 2015 and early 2016 mainly and in the run-up to the general election in February 2016. Um, Uber's public policy, their own, their own internal lobbyists were involved in this, but also they hired an external lobbyist, um, the former Secretary General of the Department of Finance, John Moran. He had left the department in 2014, he had a year's cooling off period, which is required, and then he went and worked for Uber. And through him and through their own contacts, they contacted some very significant people in government. They lobbied um, Minister for Transport, Pascal Donoghue, he was Minister of Transport at the time, Michael Noonan, the Minister for Finance, and the Taoiseach at the time, Enda Kenny. And they met him, Uber met him at Davos, the World Economic Forum in January 2016. So it was a very intensive period of lobbying in the run-up to that February 2016 election. And there was sort of some, just some suggestion, wasn't there, that you, know, you have these sort of conversations, these lobbies, these meetings, but perhaps some of those mightn't make their way onto any uh, official record. Well, Try and sort of circumvent that a little bit. Well, a large number of the contacts were. Now, there are some gaps, and we're looking at that in the Irish Times tomorrow, uh, where there are uh, official returns that were submitted. Now, there are a number of meetings and contacts that John Moran, through his firm, RHH, his own consultancy firm, uh, that those certain contacts were not registered. And we're looking at that. We have more detail on that in the paper tomorrow. Um, but what we do know is, and what we've seen from the Uber files, is what they were talking about within Uber, about what they were trying to do. For example, they were getting very, very frustrated by the taxi regulator, the National Transport Authority, and the fact that they weren't budging, they weren't approving of Uber's business model. And they made that very clear, actually, at the outset, and the Department of Transport made that clear to Uber. But uh, Uber itself got very frustrated. Uh, they basically said, well, what can we do? Uh, Gary McGann, uh, sorry, uh, Mark McGann, at one point, the lobbyist within uh, Uber, he said, uh, let's try and put some pressure uh, on the regulator. Let's contact the IDA and see what we can do in terms of trying to lean on the regulator and to put more pressure on him. And also uh, John Moran, who was the lobbyist working for Uber, he uh, wanted to get some very supportive text into the Fine Gael Manifesto in the February 2016 election. And he said he, he managed to get some text approved and they actually submitted it, which showed that Fine Gael was supportive of the sharing economy, the sharing economy being the business that Uber is in. Yeah, like there is no suggestion of any wrongdoing here, is there? I mean, lobbying happens all of the time in, in every country around the world. It happens all the time. Fine Gael have said today that uh, it's a part of democracy. You know, you allow people, be it NGOs, be it charities, be it businesses, to contact them to give their views as to what should happen. They're saying some of these ideas become policy, some don't. 
And uh, basically, it's all part and parcel of democracy. And they said, yes, some of the texts that did appear in the Fine Gael Manifesto was supportive of the sharing economy because they believed in it. They believed this cab-hailing service is a positive thing. And in fact, Leo Varadkar, the Tawnishta, has said that as recently as last month, that maybe we should look at allowing Uber to come in given the taxing shortage that's out there. Um, do they, I suppose, legislate and control uh, lobbying differently in other countries? Do they do it better than we do it here? Well, I think what needs to be looked at in light of all these revelations that have come out of the Uber files is how we look at, uh, how we ask people to register their lobbying. And in the UK, for example, the lobbied are required to declare um, what they've been lobbied about. For example, civil servants, if they have contact with businesses, they have to provide that. Whereas here in this country, it's the lobbyists. The onus is on, the, on them to show what contacts they've made. And really, there isn't a huge amount of detail given as to what it is. It's very general. There's usually one or two lines in each uh, lobbying return as to what they were contacting various departments, county councils, government about. But I think this, what this shows is perhaps we need more detail as to what the meetings are about and what the outcomes of the meetings are about. Like many journalists would try and get hold of records with regard to minutes of meetings and often we don't get those. So yes, we know that a meeting took place between a major company and government, but we don't know the detail of what was said at that meeting or even what the outcome was at that meeting or whether there were certain overtures uh, made by the company and whether the government accepted that as, yes, that's something we will do. And what you're also covering in the Irish Times tomorrow uh, in this sort of Uber Files series is that the, the uh, individual within Uber who leaked all of this uh, information to journalists um, is an Irish person. Yeah, uh, Mark McGann, he, is, he ran uh, the lobbying operations for Uber across Europe, the Middle East and Africa. And he had a very, very senior role in the company from 2014 to 2016. And he gave an interview today to the Guardian newspaper, which is the, the, the media outlet that received all these files that the files were leaked to. And they shared it with the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, which shared it with the Irish Times and outlets around the world. And Mark McGann has made very clear why he's done this. He wants to make amends. He feels that Uber has sold a lie to people, is what he said. He's unhappy with what he said to people um, in government. And he feels that he wants to he wants to basically show that, that what they said about the benefits that would come from uh, Uber weren't in fact true. All right, Uber has, of course, uh, said that they have changed their ways, haven't they, uh, Simon? Uh, but unfortunately, that's it from us. Uh, tomorrow night, we are going to be bringing you the very latest in the dial vote and a climate crisis special. But from us here, good night. Take care. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.